to Hebrews chapter 12. We've been in this uh, letter for a uh, little over a year now. I began, we began, I believe, in September of last year. The early part of the book of Hebrews, there is a, a lot of explanation. There is a, a lot of instruction. Uh, and the second part of this, which we came into uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, is building upon that which we have been told. Uh, that we may apply it to our lives. And we continue with that uh, this morning as we look at Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be reading uh, verses 3 through 17 this morning. Hebrews 12, verse 3. Hear the word of our God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, who is alive and at work and here in, the, our, in this place, that you would be at work upon us. You would open our minds that we would have understanding of what your word says and that that truth that you have revealed, uh, that that would have effect in us that what we have that feeds our mind may it also then fire our hearts, uh, that we may understand your great love, what you are doing in our lives, and so that we would be renewed in your grace and strengthened for the race that you have for us. Lord, bless us now as we consider your word. May we honor you by listening and coming with a predisposition to not only hearing, but doing what we understand that your word teaches. To you be all praise and glory in the church and in the lives of your people and throughout the world. This we pray in Christ, our Redeemer King. 
Amen. Art Carey was a a, a long time and an award winning columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, he was also a, a long distance runner, a competitive long distance runner. And so he has over 12 or had 12 um, runs or completions of the, the Boston Marathon to go along with his Pulitzer Prize. In one of his columns that he titled Beating Agony and the Marathon, Kerry uh, wrote of his experience hitting the wall while running. And so I'm going to read uh, part of that as kind of an excerpt from, uh, from that column. By now, the rigors of having run nearly 20 miles are beginning to tell. My stride has shortened. My legs are tight. My breathing is shallow and fast. My joints are becoming raw and worn. Half-dollar-sized blisters sting the soles of my feet. I'm beginning to feel queasy and lightheaded. I want to stop running. I have hit the wall. Now the real battle begins. I keep watching my feet move one after the other, hypnotized by the rhythm, the asphalt below. Shoulder cramps, leaden legs, seething blisters, dry throat, empty stomach. A radio listening spectator reports the race is over. Another runner has won. His ordeal is done. The most intense of my own is about to begin. The last four miles are seemingly endless. Some runners, their eyes riveted catatonically on the ground, trudge alone in their bare feet, holding in their hands the shoes that have blistered and bloodied their feet. Others team up to help each other along, uh, arm in arm, like-minded, uh, like mind, uh, like uh, like uh, maimed and and battle-weary soldiers returning from the front. Finally, the distinctive profile of the Prudential Building looms on the horizon. I begin to step up my pace, finish strong, suppress the pain. I can see the yellow stripe 50 yards ahead, 40, 30, 20. Cheers and clapping, the finish line, an explosion of euphoria. In the time, If the time is accurate, I've run the best marathon of my life. My place, 1176th. While times and places are important, and breaking personal best is thrilling, the real joy of the Boston Marathon is just finishing, doing what you have set out to do. The real joy of running the race was simply finishing, doing what it is that you have set out to do. And that's an important line for us to consider because According to the writer of Hebrews, the marathoner's grit and, and simple joy of simply finishing the race is metaphorical for how God's people, those who are follow, followers of Jesus Christ, are called to live in this life. Now, as we looked at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 last week, we saw that the writer of Hebrews, the author, he, he likens our lives to a, a race, and, and we see uh, him uh, saying that we are to to continue to run on. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and so we're to lay aside every weight and and sin, put put aside things that would hinder us from running the race, and encourage us to run with endurance the, the race that is set before us. And so the whole theme of race that begins this chapter that the writer wants us to embrace. Now, as we come to the verses that we are looking at this morning, it's important that we recognize we're still in that race. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to encourage uh, the believers, the, the, the original recipients of this 
uh, of this letter. If you notice in verse 5, he, he asks a question, but he also is making, uh, making a point to it. In verse 5, he, he says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, the word exhortation is one of those that you probably don't hear a whole lot outside of, out of church. I can't really think of where that comes up in my normal conversations. And so it, it's, a, it's a word that we may instinctively understand, or perhaps you're one of those uh, word junkies and you know automatically what, what it means. Uh, but the word exhortation simply means to, to strongly and to passionately encourage. And that's what the, the writer of Hebrews is trying to do, both to the original recipients and God's intent is for him to, to do for us. He is strongly and passionately encouraging us. He is like a, a cross-country coach who, using his megaphone, crawling out to the runners that are part of his team, or if we want to change and mix our metaphors, he is like the, like the coxswain on a crew team who is just not only calling out the cadence, but encouraging the rowers, encouraging them to continue the race, even when fatigue and the difficulty. And a lot of the, uh, the, the uh, same kind of symptoms that uh, are Kerry described in his marathon that, that we feel, if not physically, but we, we feel uh, emotionally. And he's writing to them and he, he's saying to them, continue on and he's giving them reason for. He's calling out passionately encouraging because he knows what we need, that encouragement. And he knows we need it, and he records this here for us so that we would be encouraged because God knows that we need to be encouraged as we run the race of this life. At the point that he's writing to them, the letter as a whole, he's writing to a people who are were deeply discouraged, in no small part, apparently because they have forgotten an important principle about the way that God relates with to his people and deals with those who are his people. It's part of the question that he, he writes in, in verse 5. Have you, have you forgotten? They've forgotten the important principle that he elaborates here as he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so there's an important principle here that really permeates this part of the passage that every one of us needs to remember and to remind ourselves about and to remind one another. God disciplines those whom he loves. That's an important principle because the people that the writer was writing to are really just like most of us are. In the midst of a, a prolonged season of suffering, they began to think of that maybe God is angry with them. Have you ever felt like that? You, you know, you're, you're looking at your life and trying to figure out if you've done something wrong or, you know, it, is it that big of a deal? Why? Why do I have all of these things happening in my life and around my life that are just hard and, and that are difficult? Now, it's important that we do remember this, that our sin has consequences. And sometimes even when God has forgiven us of our sin, there's this ripple effect, and so it ripples and comes back, and there, there is an effect, and sometimes the effect may cause seasons of sorrow. 
But it's also important that we understand this, is that is not the only reason that we experience difficult times, that we experience suffering. God's very clear throughout the Scripture, and the writer of Hebrews is reminding them and reminding us about the important principle that these people had apparently forgotten, about that God disciplines those whom he loves. Now, in this passage, in verse 5, in verse 5 and 6, he uses the word discipline and he uses the word chastising, which are essentially uh, synonymous here. But there's a big difference that we need to understand this. There's a significant difference between chastising and discipline and punishment. And when we're in the midst of difficulties, we feel sometimes like we are being punished. At least many people do, and at least I do, and talking with others, I'm not alone in that. I'm not sure that I thought about that difference a whole lot until several years ago. I mean, I, I didn't dwell on it, wasn't, didn't give a lot of time to it. Um, but as some of you know, I had um, coached high school football when I was uh, pastoring in, in Pittsburgh. And one of the coaches on the staff was a defensive coordinator, was a man that was the most appropriate man I ever knew. His name was John Psycho. Um, and I'm not kidding. Uh, S-I-C-C-O. Um, and... Um, it was an appropriate name, but he was also an incredibly caring, although sometimes you wouldn't get that. I, he did a banquet at one time and stood up and said, yeah, I don't know most of your kids' names and I don't care, but he did care. He did care deeply about people, and, but he made the point when, uh, he was, when one of the coaches was trying to correct some of the players for uh, just frequent and, and repeated mistakes, and, and they were putting them through some punishment. And he says, we never punish, we discipline. And the guy said, what's the difference? I mean, he was going back old school to how, how he had worked. And he said, punishment is for the sake simply of inflicting pain. Discipline may seem unpleasant, but it's for the purpose of training. It's for a product. It's to produce something. And there's a significant difference. And what the writer of Hebrews here is saying is that whatever it is that you're experiencing that may be difficult in your life, that you may feel like it's punishment, God is saying, no, no, no. If you belong to him, he may be chastising you, which is likened to punishment, but it's connected to discipline. And discipline is a training towards something. Not all discipline itself seems like it is. It may be unpleasant, but it doesn't necessarily seem like punishment. Discipline may be going through things that you don't enjoy doing. Discipline may be doing things over and over and over again that you would, order, you would enjoy if you didn't have to do it over and over and over again. Think about those of you who have, uh, were musicians, not those of you that are gifted, but the rest, uh, who had to go through and endure, uh, you know, piano lessons or guitar and just practice, 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 practice. That is a discipline that enabled you to do something in the end. And, and what God is saying through the writer of Hebrews here is that God disciplines the ones that he loves. There is something that he is planning to produce, something beautiful that he is planning to produce, something that ultimately you and I and the people that received this letter in the beginning would be thankful for once we have the perspective to understand what God is doing. The problem is so many of us, we either never understood this principle to begin with, or we have functionally forgotten this principle. And so in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of seasons of suffering, we begin to wonder, God, are you angry with me? God, are you mad at me? I was encouraged by the fact that this was an experience, not just that I have and people who are my friends have, but even some of the saints of generations before. 
I was encouraged to know that it was the same experience that John Newton, the one who was the author of Amazing Grace, a prolific uh, writer, not only of hymns, but of poems, some of which have been made hymns, others have not. But he has a, a poem that he wrote that he was processing this way of God working within his people that he calls, I Ask the Lord. I want to read the, the poem to you this morning and maybe work our way through that uh, a little bit because he's speaking in lyrical ways the very message that the writer of Hebrews is wanting to communicate to us as well. And so here's what Newton says. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I mean, what a great prayer. We're supposed to be praying that we would grow. It's sanctification. It's growth spiritually. That I, I want to grow, and I want to grow in faith, and I want to grow in love. And I want to experience God's grace. I want to seek God's face. What an incredible prayer. He goes on. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair." In other words, praying that we should grow spiritually to experience the presence and the love of God and that love would ooze through us. God tells us that we're supposed to pray. So he prays this prayer because he wants to grow. It's the passion of his heart. And he figures God is going to answer this prayer because God's the one that told him to answer this prayer. But the way that it came about was contrary to the way that he had expected. And he said that rather than bringing him comfort immediately, it almost drove him to despair. Here's what Newton goes on and says, because Newton here is certainly capturing my sensibilities. I had hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. In other words, I pray, God, let me grow. Let me grow in grace. Let love come through me. And God, who is all-powerful, can do all things, who raises us from spiritually being dead and and to make us alive, he could go like that and just, I pray it, he does it, everybody's happy, right? That's the way that I think, that's the way that Newton thought, that's not the way God thinks. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed and blasted my gourds and laid me low. In other words, I prayed that I want to grow. I want to grow in grace. I want to grow and understand the love of God. I want the love of God to come through me. You know, Lord, you tell me that I'm supposed to pray this. This is what you want for our lives. I pray it. You, you know, you, you do it. And then what happens? I just become keenly aware of all of my own brokenness and my sins and, and then circumstances that produce that knowledge of how I respond in certain circumstances, I feel like I'm going to be undone. I'm going to be wiped out. You know, I pray this prayer, and this is God's response. Lord, why is this, I trembling cry? Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. 
And so Newton goes through and, and it's process, and no doubt with the influence of the, of the writer of the Hebrews, and understands we go through these seasons of suffering, of difficulty, and, and sometimes, particularly when we become more keenly aware of, of our own sin, we assume that God is, is angry and that he's punishing us. As the writer of Hebrews says, and as Newton found, it's not necessarily the case. It's the way that God works in those he loves. And he goes on, the writer of Hebrews goes on, he says that when this is happening, God the Father is treating us like we are his sons and daughters. In verses six, seven and, uh, and following, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And, and so he's saying that this is part of being part of the family of God. And he's pointing us to an example that we should understand from our own lives. That it is the father and the mother who love their children, who don't seek to be the BFF of their children while they're growing up. They've got friends where they need their parents. We have a generation, unfortunately, where the parents, since my generation is raising children, that our own needs coming through our children, they're not being the parents. They're not disciplining their children. They're not helping their children to recognize that the, the world does not revolve around them. So maybe some of this is foreign and needs to be reinstituted. But the writer of Hebrews says that through every generation, in every part of the world, where parents are parents, they are training their children to survive in this world. And when they are Parents who are of faith, they're training them to survive in this world and to relate to God. And that means sometimes there is correction, but the correction should not be punishment, just mere punishment for the sake of punishing. It is for the sake of discipline, of training, of raising that child so that when they reach the age of adulthood, they are able to go and they are able to flourish in this world. It's part of what parenting is about. The writer of Hebrews says, when God is doing this for us, when God is doing this in us, when we are experiencing difficulty and suffering, don't just consider that God is angry and you're experiencing punishment. Recognize, even if you can't figure out exactly what it is that God is doing, that he's pruning, he is shaping, he is preparing you in order to flourish. And sometimes that brings the chastisement, the correction, the discipline that seems so unpleasant. Now, it's possible that some might think, isn't this kind of cruel? Shouldn't, you know, parents really do that? Can't they just do the encouraging word? Well, hopefully there would be an encouraging word. But look at nature and recognize that sometimes parents have to put their children into positions that would seem to make them very uncomfortable in order for them to flourish. As I understand, you could go down to Jamestown Island and find the eagle's nest at the, at the right time. And as I've read, and I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a bird expert, but my understanding is how that the, the mother uh, of uh, eagle trains the eaglets to, to fly is at the right time, she would take them out of the nest, soaring above, and drops them. And they're going plummeting, plummeting, plummeting to the ground. They have never flown before. They don't know how they're supposed to fly. They flap, but they don't go anywhere. They keep on going. She soars down, grabs them, brings them back to safety, and then, in due time, repeats the process. The kids certainly feel like they're being punished. I, I'm pretty sure if you do that, you'll be arrested. But that's uh, uh, but I got a point here somewhere. And um, 
But the time comes when the eaglets flies and never would if the mother eagle didn't put the eaglets in a position to experience fear, feeling as if being abandoned, maybe even being punished. I mean, it, it's dangerous. And yet it's because of that that the eagle is able to soar. And part of the way, the reason that God is at work within us is because we see it here. We go through, we endure discipline so that we would have life. And that doesn't, it's not the, you know, the Greek word, the, the bios. It's not so that we can, you know, live and breathe and eat and do that stuff. It's, it's, it's life that we would have joy, that we would flourish, that we would experience more and more of what we were created to be in this world and in relationship to God. And that comes through discipline. And so I want to encourage you this morning, in the midst of your difficult season, and some of you may be in that right now, I don't know everybody's situation. If you're in the midst of a difficult season, or if you know somebody who's in the midst of a difficult season, you need to know this. It's not because God is mad at you. See, here's how God has already treated the sin which would make him, give him reason to be mad at us. In Romans 5, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, the people that were rebelling against God. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by his death, the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In other words, while we were enemies of God, when God had every reason to be angry with us, when he has every reason to punish us, to wipe us out, his response was to pour that wrath upon his own son who took it in our place so that you and I, by trusting in what Jesus has experienced, would be not only set free, not only that our slate would be clean, that we would be reconciled and have a relationship with God. It's the means by which we are born into God's family. It's the means by which God demonstrates his love for us. And so the fact that you have sin is not the reason to say God is mad at me. If you recognize your sin, it's opportunity. The reason it's being exposed is so that you can repent of it and be reminded of the love of God. But because this is the way that God has dealt with the sin of those of his people, he, whatever hardship you're going through, it's not because God is, is mad at you if you are one of his children. It's because he is at work within you and is producing something. But we also see with that, you know, the, the writer of Hebrews goes on and says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. As a parent, I remember there is nothing that was more aggravating than to, you know, give a, a simple spanking and have your oldest son to laugh. Um, yeah, laugh now. No way. Anyway, that's uh, yeah. So uh, that, for the moment, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we need to recognize that God disciplines those he loves, but God's discipline produces a renewed life 
and a fruitful life. And so he picks up here, and we won't go into great detail with it from a, for a time standpoint, but I do want to look at the, the passages. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Discipline of Grace, whom I shamelessly stole the title of this message from, writes this, All pain we experience is intended to move us closer to the goal of being holy as God is holy. Whatever the suffering that you're experiencing, whether it's a pruning or just simply circumstantial and a training, all of that has a purpose, which is to drive you to God and to experience not only his grace, but the holiness that his grace at work within us produces. And the writer of Hebrews now, as he's writing to these people who have hit the wall spiritually, he, he uses these words that kind of definitely uh, the imagery of a writer in verse 12. So therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In other words, that he recognizes that we are weary and the description of hitting the wall that, uh, that our Carrie uh, wrote about that we read at the beginning uh, of this message, we may feel similar things. We may feel that weariness and that, that brokenness in our souls. But he's saying, look, because of the truth of what God is doing, God is not angry with you. So the primary demotivator that would keep you from pressing on, it's not the issue, but there is something good at the end of the race. There is joy to be experienced even in the midst of the race. So press on rather than becoming broken and dysfunctional. And he uses this language and he says that we are to, to, um, to lift our drooping hands and to strengthen our weak knees. And he's using that posture of a, of a runner who's exhausted, just kind of leaning over and trying to catch breath and just doesn't feel that they can move on. I see in these words also a metaphor for part of the Christian life with the, for serving other people and, and for prayer. The, 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 the hands that uh, are, are drooping rather than reaching out and the knees that feel so weak that we don't want to bend them. And so we're just too tired to talk to God and to pray. Now, I say that I see the metaphor. I, I looked at several commentators, and nobody else seemed to see that metaphor. So it may not be there, but it still is a legitimate principle. You're up to, up to you to decide whether or not it belongs there necessarily. But, but the imagery that he's using is to say, look, it's to continue in, in what we're supposed to do. And part of that is to commune with God through, through our prayer, continue talking with him and hearing him speak to us, and then to reach out and to serve others. Because ultimately, while it can also be a source of our weariness, it is through serving other people. It is for being at work for God's kingdom that also brings us energy and, and renewed energy. And he says that the goal, it's going to produce holiness in us. And, and that's what he speaks about. So we continue, we, we see in, in, in this passage, strive for peace with everyone and for, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's an important principle. If you've been at Grace Covenant for a while or even just a few times, you know, we are heavy on grace. We remind everyone of the gospel, what God has done for us. And it'd be very easy to assume that, you know, we just assume that, that therefore what our emphasis is that 
bygones are bygones, and, and everything is, is great with God. Everything is great with God, but for a purpose, because he is cultivating holy. God says, be holy as I am holy. That is the expectation. The only way that we experience holiness, the only way is we get holiness is by God's grace and as a work within us. But it is an expectation nevertheless. There is no, despite what people would say, you know, options like your insurance plan, well, I will take the, the full coverage, or, you know, I think I can make do with this in the Christian life where, okay, I'm going to sign up for salvation, but the holiness part, you know, I, I don't think I really need that. I don't, I'll, I'll come back if it seems like things are getting difficult. The whole point of the salvation is that we would grow to be more Christ-like. And holiness is a characteristic of God that makes him distinct from all others. And God says that we are to be holy as he is holy. God is in his own nature. We are becoming that way. J.C. Ryle, in his classic book, Holiness, says this. Holiness is the habit for, for a practical application for us. Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God, according as we find his mind described in the Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. So holiness is becoming more godly. And holiness is thinking God's thoughts after him, loving what he loves, hating what he hates, viewing the world as God views the world, and as our minds and as our affections are more and more conformed to what God says, then we're experiencing a measure of growth in holiness. Jerry Bridges says this in his book, Pursuit of Holiness. Holiness begins in our minds and works out in our actions. In other words, as we begin to think God's thoughts, as we begin to hold God's values, it doesn't just there. We don't just check the box and say, yes, I, I agree with this. But it begins to shape us and begins to express itself in our day-to-day -day lives. And he gives a couple of practical examples. He says, seek peace with all people. Verse 14. Now, we all desire that, but if you think about it, or if you've had experience trying this with some seeking peace with some people who aren't necessarily committed to it, uh, it, it can also feel sometimes like an incredibly heavy weight. I think it's something that we are called to because it's the Christ reconciled us so that we would be at peace with God. Now he sends us, so we would be his vessels to bring peace between people and God, and it only makes sense that we would be at peace. But I think we need to also understand that what God means here uh, through the uh, way that the Apostle Paul put it is this, is if possible, as far as it's up to you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, we desire peace. And if somebody wants to be at peace with you, then we should be willing to be at peace with them, regardless of whether we agree or regardless of the history. We should be willing to be at peace with them. But the principle is, as far as it's up to you, there are sometimes people who don't want the peace, and they withhold that peace unless you do what they want. That's called manipulation. And sometimes people who do that would ask for you to compromise certain things so that you can be at peace with them. And we see, culturally speaking, that that's exactly what the world is saying to the church. And unfortunately, the church is saying, please like me, please like me, please like me with the misunderstanding of being at peace. And so we validate the principles of the world, which are contrary to the holiness of God, even some of which which are spoken here. As far as it's up to you, whether personally or culturally speaking, we want to be at peace. And so therefore we live out the righteousness as God has called us to be, 
We're always open to reconcile and to love the people who are around us. But we recognize sometimes there is not peace, not because we are unwilling, but because the person doesn't really want peace, they want control. The culture doesn't really want peace, they want compromise. But nevertheless, it's not an excuse to not seek peace. And in seeking peace, usually, if we experience it, that's going to eliminate some of the sorrow and the difficulties we have. In verse 15, he goes on and gives another practical example. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, uh, and by many become, may become defiled. In other words, it's very easy for us to look good on the outside, but be rotting on the inside because we are better either about our circumstances or what people have done or not done for us. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look to your hearts, recognize that. Don't let that, that bitterness shape you. It, it kind of falls in the category of what we looked at last week. Get rid of certain things in your life that are hindering you from running this race. And I would say bitterness is kind of like, you know, smoking six packs of cigarettes in a day. You're not going to run very well. And it goes on, we see in verse 16, another practical, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. And it's vitally important that we understand what he's saying is shed whatever the temptations or whatever, but being conformed to the way God sees things, and the word that is used here in, in the Greek is is, uh, is pornos, from which we get the idea of, of pornography. It's any sexual immorality, which is such a, a broad category in some ways, but we need to be very clear here because while sexual, sexual immorality is a broad category encompassing a wide range of sins, it doesn't seem necessarily specific enough right now, depending on whose definition you're using of immorality. And we, as the followers of Jesus Christ, need to be very clear. God has a sexual ethic. And what he's saying here is that the only thing, that nobody should allow themselves to get caught up in anything that is outside God's design for sexuality, which is within the context of marriage, and marriage is to be between one man and one woman. And we're to conform ourselves to that. We're not to compromise in that area. That doesn't mean you can't love people who differ with you or disagree, because we're to seek to be at peace, but that doesn't require compromise. It requires the ability to love even when somebody differs from you. But we, in our lives, we stand, and he's just throwing out certain things, and he's saying, look, God's discipline produces certain fruits. And here's an example as it works itself out. When you begin to understand what God is doing in you while you're running the race, Here's ways that it's going to manifest itself. And some of these things, either engaging and doing them, like seeking peace, will renew your energy. And some of these things, when you stop doing them, which sexual immorality or being bitter about all sorts of things, when you shed those things, it enables you to run this race. And so we look at this passage and we recognize God says, I discipline those whom I love, but my discipline is for the purpose of enabling you to grow in holiness. And in that holiness, you will experience the joy that you long for. Jerry Bridges, again, in his book, Discipline of Grace, says this, In times of adversity, Satan will seek to plant the thought in our minds that God is angry with us and is disciplining us out of wrath. Here is another instance when we need to preach the gospel to ourselves 
It is the gospel that will reassure that the penalty for our sin has been paid and that God's justice has been fully satisfied. I'll finish with two stories. The first of is a man named John Aquari, who was uh, represented uh, Tanzania in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. He wasn't a world-class runner in terms of he wasn't expected to be one of the medalists. But clearly he was good enough to compete in the Olympics. But his chances were significantly wrecked even more when he succumbed to cramps during his marathon run of the Olympics that slowed his progress. And if that wasn't painful enough, as it slowed his process, then runners that were behind him kind of came up as a group of them. And he kind of got caught up in the middle of them. And he's limping along, not running at full pace. He's hurting, trying to... And, and in the group, then, he got kind of knocked around, fell to the ground, he gashed his knee, and caused a dislocation. He also smashed his shoulder against the pavement. Most of the people who saw the fall and his injuries assumed that he would pull out of the race and go to the hospital. 18 of the 75 people who had started the race had already pulled out, and he had experienced far more uh, significant difficulties than the others. Instead, he chose to receive medical attention, and he returned to the track, and he continued his race. More than an hour after the last runner had crossed the finish line, after the sun had set, after the medals for his race had already been awarded, and after nearly everyone had left the stadium, the quarry crossed the finish line, far in last place. He was asked why he carried on, and his response has gone down in sports history. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race, he said. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. God did not redeem you at the price of the death and resurrection of his son, just so that you could enter and have some, you know, nice feelings in this life. He redeemed you and empowers you that you can continue and that you will finish the race. The second story is another Olympics a few years later. And Derek Redman was a British runner who was favored to win a medal in the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. But during the semifinal qualifying heat, in the middle of a race, he tore a hamstring, which forced him to pull up lane and fall lame, and he fell to one knee. And, and while he was tempted to leave the race in grit and determination, he tried to stand up. People were watching. It was only a 400-meter race, but they, they were watching this. And, and then out of nowhere, his father had leapt, had scooted past the guards, leapt over the barriers from the stands onto the track, ran out, grabbed his son by the waist, lifted him up, and went with him to the finish line. You may feel lame. You may feel that you don't have what it takes to finish this race. But the whole point, the writer of Hebrews in this chapter says, look to Jesus, who, in whom God sent. He became one of us. He came to be like us, to suffer in our place, to lift us up, and to carry us through. You're not running this race alone. 
You're not even running a race on your own power alone. As our eyes are focused on Jesus, remembering what he has done, remembering what he has promised, remembering that he is at work within us, we continue on, whether at good pace or whether limping. But you can finish and must finish the race. Father, we pray with thanksgiving for your love, which is greater than we can fathom, so difficult for us to believe because it is so pervasive. Lord, let us rest in your love, and may your love shape us, encourage us, and renew us. May it be evident in us. Can you be all praise and thanksgiving from your church, from our lives.